One of the uh, seed thoughts that Jesus planted, the first time he spoke in parables, likened the kingdom of God to a mustard seed, the smallest of garden seeds that grows into a plant large enough to shelter the birds of the air. And last week we heard Jesus asking the frightened disciples, how is it that you have no faith? Well, if we combine the mustard seed we looked at two weeks ago with the lack of faith demonstrated last week, we can't help but think of what Jesus told the disciples after coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration. If you have faith as a mustard seed, you shall say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it shall move, and nothing shall be impossible to you. Mustard seed faith, faith that moves mountains. Now, obviously, Jesus wasn't speaking of moving literal mountains, but mountainous obstacles that are faced in life, obstacles that appear immovable but can be moved with faith. And it's apparently not the amount of faith that moves the mountains. Just a grain of faith will do as long as the faith is in the right thing or person. You know, if you put our faith in something or someone who is powerless to do what we ask, it won't matter how much faith we put in it. It still won't be possible. But if our faith is in one who is omnipotent, who has the power to do anything, Nothing is impossible. That's the point Jesus is making. If our faith is in him, nothing is impossible. Now, that is not a guarantee that we will always get what we ask for. James tells us that sometimes we ask and don't receive because we ask with wrong motives. And like children who don't understand the implications of a request, we sometimes ask for things that our Heavenly Father knows won't be good for us or for someone else. But as the psalmist says, if we delight ourselves in the Lord, He will give us the desires of our heart. In other words, if we put His will above our will, as Jesus did in the garden, his will becomes our will, and it will be done according to our request. Even then, however, there is often a problem. We don't always know what his will is in a particular situation. What do we do then? Do we ask for nothing and just trust that his will will be done? Or do we go ahead and ask in faith, confident that he can do what we ask and will do it if it's in keeping with his purposes and his ultimate will for us? I think we should go ahead and ask. And I don't think we should hold back and only ask what we think might be reasonable, what we've been led to believe we can expect. We must not limit 
our faith to what religion, science, or personal experience leads us to expect. God can do far more than we've been led to expect. So we need to have faith that goes beyond reasonable expectations. And we see that illustrated three times in our text for today. Twice positively and once negatively. We begin with a look at faith that goes beyond religion. We're in Mark chapter 5. And when Jesus had crossed over again in the boat to the other side, a great multitude gathered about him, and he stayed by the seashore. And one of the synagogue officials named Jairus came up, and upon seeing him, fell at his feet and entreated him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Please come and lay your hands on her, that she may get well and live. And he went off with him. And a great multitude was following him and pressing in on him. Now, Jairus was the leader, the, the ruler of the synagogue in Capernaum. He was an important religious man, yet all the resources of religion couldn't meet Jairus's need. He was the one who scheduled the services and saw to it that a rabbi was there to teach the people. He had access to all that religion had to offer, yet when faced with death, his religion proved insufficient. The text says his daughter was at the point of death. The Greek says at the last gasp. The desperation of seeing his 12-year-old daughter at the last gasp proved too much for his religion. That kind of emergency didn't fit into the neat orthodoxy that he was in charge of. He needed more than religious services now. He needed someone who could do something. And he thought Jesus just might be the person who could do something. You know, he had probably been there when Jesus had commanded the evil spirits to leave the man who had interrupted him while teaching in the synagogue. And he had no doubt seen Jesus heal many, probably standing off from the crowd because the ruler of the synagogue wouldn't want to get too close to this unorthodox rabbi. But he had seen what Jesus could do for others, and now he had a need. At that point, he lost his pride and religious self-sufficiency and fell at Jesus' feet, hoping to find life for his dying daughter. He had come to the right place. As would later be proven when Jesus rose from the grave, he does have power over life and death. But Jairus didn't know that. He came in faith that went beyond his religious expectations, desperately hoping that Jesus could keep his daughter alive. Apparently, Jesus didn't say anything. He just went off with Jairus, the crowd following along and getting in the way. And on the way to Jairus' house, an incident took place that delayed them a bit, and we're going to look at that in a minute. But for now, let's jump ahead and see what happened 
when Jairus, or when Jesus got to Jairus' home. While he was still speaking, they came from the house of the synagogue official saying, your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher anymore? But Jesus, overhearing what was being spoken, said to the synagogue official, do not be afraid any longer, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow with him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the synagogue official, and he beheld a commotion and people loudly weeping and wailing. And entering in, he said to them, why make a commotion and weep? The child has not died, but is asleep. And they began laughing at him. But putting them all out, he took along the child's father and mother and his own companions and entered the room where the child was. And taking the child by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which translated means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl rose and began to walk, for she was 12 years old. And immediately they were completely astounded. And he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this. And he said that something should be given her to eat. On the way to Jarvis's home, the girl had died. And someone had been sent to inform Jarvis and to tell him not to bother Jesus. It was too late. But even in the face of death, Jesus said, Keep on believing. Keep believing in him. Then Jesus did what no religion can do. He conquered death. And I like the way he did it. When they got to the house, the place was full of paid mourners, professionals who were hired to demonstrate the grief of the family of the recently deceased. And Jesus asked them what all the commotion was about. The girl, he said, was only sleeping, but they knew better. She was dead. It was final. It was time for grief. They even ridiculed Jesus, laughed at him. He merely sent them away. And going into the girl's room with her parents and Peter, James, and John, he said to the girl, Talitha Kum. Now Mark records for us the very Aramaic words that Jesus had spoken, hearing them, no doubt, from Peter's lips. And then for his Greek readers, he translated it, little girl or little lamb, I say to you, arise. And just as Jesus had said, it was as if she had only been sleeping. She got up and started walking around, probably hugging and kissing her parents. Mark then gives us insight into the practical concerns of Jesus. While everyone else was rejoicing, he was concerned that she be given something to eat. The girl who had been dead was now alive. What had seemed so final now proved to be but a temporary separation. Indeed, death had become sleep in his presence. And that is still true today. You know, even if we don't wake up here, we know we'll wake up on the other side. 
because death becomes sleep in his presence. Well, let's go back now to that incident that happened on the way to Jairus' home. And there we see an example of faith going beyond science. And a woman who had had a hemorrhage for 12 years and had endured much at the hands of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was not helped at all, but rather had grown worse after hearing about Jesus, came up in the crowd behind him and touched his cloak. For, he shot, he, for, for she thought, if I just touch his garments, I shall get well. And immediately the flow of her blood was dried up. And she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. And immediately Jesus, perceiving in himself that the power proceeding from him had gone forth, turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the multitude pressing in on you and you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see the woman who had done this. But the woman, fearing and trembling, aware of what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. This woman had sought out the best care the science of her day had to offer. Mark says that she had spent all she had on doctors and had only grown worse. Now Luke, the beloved physician in his account, protects the profession a bit by simply saying she couldn't be cured. But Mark makes it clear she had endured much at the hands of many physicians. The Jewish Talmud actually gives 11 cures for an issue of blood or uterine hemorrhage, as it would be called today. Several treatments called for tonics and astringents, but some bordered on the ridiculous, like carrying the ashes of an ostrich egg in a linen bag. Or, as one treatment prescribed, set her in a place where two ways meet and let her hold a cup of wine in her hand and let someone come up behind her and affright her and say, Arise from thy flux. I was telling that to Brian this week. Did you ever find out what flux is, Brian? You didn't check it out, huh? Okay. Arise from thy flux. It means flow, okay, just to help you out. You know, obviously we laugh at the treatments proposed here. But they were the best that medical science had to offer 2,000 years ago. But as we're all aware, scientific conclusions and even scientific consensus changes as more information becomes available. In addition to that, the scope of science is limited to what is observable in a physical universe, and and overlooks completely the spiritual realm and the possibility of supernatural action. That's why it's foolish to give up all hope just because a doctor says something is hopeless. Science does not hold all the answers to the struggles and maladies of life. 
And as we've already noted, neither do religious practices and ceremonies. In fact, they can sometimes make matters worse, as they no doubt did for this woman. Not only had she been going to doctors for 12 years who couldn't help her, her particular ailment made her ceremonially, religiously unclean. The flow of blood had ostracized her from society almost as much as if she had been a leper. She could have no physical contact with anyone without making them unclean as well. So her condition was very depressing. And a woman of lesser faith would have given up completely, but not her. She thought, if I can only touch the hem of his garment, this Jesus can heal me. You know, it would have been much too embarrassing for her to openly come to Jesus and tell him of her woes. But if she could just touch his clothing as he walked through the crowd, no one would know. And she would be healed. She just knew it. And sure enough, when she touched him, she was healed. But apparently it wasn't something Jesus had intentionally done. The text tells us he perceived power had gone from him, which seems to indicate that Jesus was merely the channel through whom the healing came. Now that doesn't minimize the role he played in the healing, for as he said in John 14.10, the Father abiding in me does his work. Apparently God saw her faith and made her whole. He saw her making her way through the crowd to his son, and he honored her faith. When Jesus realized what had happened, he said, who touched me? The disciples thought it was a stupid question because everyone was bumping into him and touching him. I think Jesus knew exactly what had happened and that he simply wanted to establish a relationship with the woman who had touched him. He didn't want her going away thinking she had been healed because she believed if she touched the garment of a holy man, she'd be healed. He wanted her to know the person through whom her healing had come and to assure her of his acceptance. When she came forward in, in fear and trembling, not knowing what he was going to do, and fell down before him and told him the whole story, he addressed her as he addressed no one else in the Gospels. Affectionately calling her daughter, he said, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction." In the presence of Jesus, she had found herself healed, cleansed, and accepted. Being cleansed and accepted makes possible an eternal relationship. Physical healing, if it's granted, is only a temporary reprieve. You know, unless Jesus returns while we are still alive, we are all going to die. We must die in order to exchange that which is physical for that which is eternal. 
and a sickness may be a sickness unto death. But since we seldom know if that's the case or not, don't be afraid to ask for healing. Let your faith take you beyond science to the compassionate healer and great physician. He may heal you. He healed the woman who wouldn't give up. And he even raised from the dead the daughter of Jairus. Both of them had enough faith to seek more than others would have thought to be possible. They're positive examples of faith that goes beyond. Next we come to a negative example because Jesus' hometown didn't have faith to go beyond experience. Into the sixth chapter now. And he went out from there and he came into his hometown and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue and the many listeners were astonished saying, where did this man get these things? And what is this wisdom given to him and, and such miracles as these performed by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary? And brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his own relatives and in his own household. And he could do no miracle there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he wondered at their unbelief. The people of Nazareth thought they knew Jesus. He'd grown up there. They knew his family. He had probably helped build their houses. Surely the stories they were hearing about him were exaggerated. This was Jesus, the carpenter, a common laborer. He wasn't anyone special. In fact, by referring to him as the son of Mary, they were calling his legitimacy into question. You know, even if a father was deceased, a man was referred to as a woman's son only if the father was in question. And the town gossip was true. Mary had been expecting before she and Joseph were married. The townsfolk took offense at Jesus. They knew him as the carpenter, and they knew he hadn't attended the rabbinic schools. Who did he think he was teaching them? And for 30 years, he hadn't performed miracles. Why should they believe the reports about miracles now? They had no faith in him. And as a result, Mark says, he could do no miracles there. Now, I do not believe that means Jesus cannot do miracles unless we believe he can. That his hands are tied by our unbelief. He is God. He can do whatever he wants. 
whether we think he can or not. But miracles do confirm belief in him. That's why they're done, to assure us that he is indeed the Son of God. If we don't believe who he is, miracles serve no purpose. In fact, miracles are reduced to magic if we don't understand who is doing them and why. And Jesus hadn't come home to open a sideshow. A few who did believe in him were healed, but most didn't believe. So he did nothing for them. And indeed, Jesus is often limited in our lives because we assume he can't or won't do something we've never seen him do before. We limit him to our experience. We don't attempt to go beyond our past experiences with him. We don't believe he can do any more than we've already seen him do. So we fail to ask for more. If what we want seems to go beyond the legitimate limits of religion, we don't ask for it. And we refuse to believe he can do more than science allows and give up when doctors have done all they can do, when he might be willing to intercede and heal directly. Don't be afraid to go beyond what you've experienced in the past. Don't be afraid to go beyond what seems reasonable. Go beyond the acceptable limits and expectations of the religious world. Go beyond science. Have enough faith to at least ask your Heavenly Father to consider doing what you know He can do and what He might be willing to do. If you will just ask. In Christ, we have the possibility to go beyond anything the world has to offer. So let's not be limited by the world. Jesus wondered at the unbelief of the people of Nazareth. Let's make him wonder at our belief. There's no limit to what he can do. Nothing, nothing is impossible with God. But we must believe that he is God before he will act like God on our behalf. If you believe it, let him know it and feel free to take anything to the Lord in prayer.